Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamota and Danny Abdeljabar. What's up, brother? How are you? Chilling, man, as per usual. How about yourself? I'm doing pretty well. It was nice seeing you last night. Um, Likewise, man. It was a wonderful fireworks show. Um, The reason why we're talking about 4th of July is because uh, right now it's July 5th, and this episode is uh, set to release on Sunday. I'm not sure exactly what date that is, and um, I guess if you're listening to this on Sunday, I'll be at a Cubs game, so um, <laughs> I'll be moving around a lot this this month. But uh, yeah, last week, or, or excuse me, yesterday on 4th of July, I had the pleasure of hanging out with Danny in person, and damn, that was a, a nice view uh, to see the fireworks show. Definitely, man. I, I'm, I'm blessed to have a uh, pretty unobstructed sightline to uh, Manhattan from Brooklyn, and you know that Macy's parade was... Uh, parade Macy's fireworks display it was pretty cool um very easily visible but I think even even better than the the Macy's fireworks was all of the amateur fireworks uh displays that were popping off all around us including probably on the same exact roof that we were standing <laughs> just like right behind us it was pretty cool yeah, pretty cool it's man where Danny lives he has like a really good view of not only Manhattan but a lot of Brooklyn, most of Queens, even like the Bronx is up in the distance. So you can see constant fireworks just going off all night. Even some would just like explode right in front of your face. Um, Felt like a little bit like a like a like a happy war zone. You a know? Happy, like <laughs> a happy war zone. Yeah. Um, but yeah, let's get into the episode. Um, so we're aiming to do more of an evergreen topic, um, even though there's just a lot going on in the news. But um, to um, start this out um or just to give you some background of what we're talking about is um on on june of 2014 so during a a defense subcommittee hearing senator dan coates who's a senator out of indiana said that based on his knowledge the pentagon has a contingency plan on the shelf for just about every possible scenario including an invasion by canada I mean, I, I found that to be pretty wild. Even though it doesn't exactly surprise me, I still think it's pretty wild. But I think the story is pretty cool, and I'm I'm pretty pumped to talk about it today. It, I don't think it really should surprise anywhere anybody. Um, I mean, that's what their job is, you know, in the Pentagon to think up of all these crazy scenarios and however unlikely that un, unlikely a war between the U.S. and Canada um, would be. You know, you have to bet that there's there's probably some document in some safe in the Pentagon, in some vault that details what we would do in the case, you know, for, for some reason or another, we went to war with Canada. Well, I mean, today, when you think about going to war with Canada, it just seems like the most absurd 
topic like why the hell would we ever want to go to war with canada you know they're probably some of the nicest people and they're our neighbors and we have no beef with them whatsoever but i guess in the context of when these plans were drawn up and why they were drawn up it actually makes a ton of sense uh, as to why we had these plans well all right just put this in historical context the u.s has actually invaded canada in the past right for example, you know, one of the first major battles in the Revolutionary War was in Canada. So um, the Battle of Quebec, which was a which was kind of a disaster for the Continental Army. Um, but Canada was also pulled into the War of 1812 because the British were using it as a staging ground. So the U.S. invaded it multiple times. And, you know, those invasions were weren't very successful either. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they were repelled by the militias up there and as well as the Indian population. So right. the uh, Tecumseh, uh, Tecumseh and in, in the first mm-hmm. nations, but I mean, technically Canada wasn't Canada at the time. It was technically the British empire, but I hear what you're saying. Yeah. Um, we fought with them before, <laughs> but there's also some really bizarre stories like the, uh, the pork and beans war, actual name, by the way, <laughs> the pork and beans war, um, yeah. where the state of Maine, and Britain almost went to war over um, over timber rights. Right. Um, and then there was also a war in Western Canada not so long after that. This is the 1800s, um, where a war almost, or at least a skirmish almost broke off after a uh, a pig that was shot. Right. They were, and, they were arguing over the value of the pig that got shot, and that basically escalated very quickly. And uh, it was um, Commodore... Um, Commodore, what was his name? Something Hazard Perry, not not to be um, confused with uh, Matthew Perry, the one that went over to uh, Japan for the gunboat diplomacy. But uh, he was the he was the dude that was supposed to go through with this uh, little skirmish. The Pretty pig wars, pig war, the pig war. Only only one pig died for this entire war. Only one pig died. Um, but I mean, we're talking about like no casualties with any of these skirmishes. One of the right. most bizarre ones. And this is something I recently learned about was the Finian raids. Have you ever oh, heard yeah. of those? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the, the one with the with the Irish. So um, a group of Irish Catholic loyalists, mostly Civil War vets, um, they founded a group called the Finian Brotherhood, but they also called themselves the Irish Republican Army, the IRA. <laughs> so they were the original <laughs> IRA. Yeah, and they were an anti-British group. And they created a scheme to occupy and seize Canada as a hostage to force the British to withdraw from Ireland in exchange. And honestly, that's also part of the plan <laughs> for us to invade Canada, too. But I, I won't get ahead of myself. But it seems like Canada is always being used as, as like this um, bargaining chip against uh, leverage against the, the British Empire. Yeah, well, that's what, it, that's what it was. And they actually did invade, and there were clashes, but it didn't really work out. Of course um, not. You know, the Irish did not get its independence until the 20th century. But the, you know, the, the Finian Brotherhood ultimately ends up getting arrested in America. I mean, there was a couple of border skirmishes. There were actual battles and casualties in this. Mm-hmm. Um, but these are just examples, and, you know, they're very strange historical footnotes that most people probably don't know too much about including myself you know all of these different border disputes um really do warrant their own podcast but what we want to focus on today are the war plans that were created um in the 20th century 
the reason why I got interested in this is I actually just read a book um, called War Plan Red, the United States' secret plan to invade Canada and Canada's secret plan to invade the United States. And it's a pretty short book. It's about like 150 pages or so. So you can read it in one sitting. And it's just about pretty self-explanatory. It's about these different documents that were declassified and um, about these plans to invade our neighbor up north and vice versa. Um, And that's where I'm probably getting most of uh, the deeper context from uh, in this book. And after I read this book, the... I read the actual document itself, uh, War Plan Red. It's actually in this in the footnotes, the entire document, and it's really weird. It's very yeah. bizarre. This whole thing. Um, it's it very seems a little, detailed too, actually. It, exactly. It's very detailed, and it's just it's a strange document. And to give you just a, a high level overview, the scenario of these invasions are due to World War One debts. So even before the U.S. entered World War One, the U.S. was financing it, or at the very least, they were financing the British. And after the wars were over, the British owed the U.S. billions and billions of dollars. So time to pay up, Britain. <laughs> time to pay up. So their debt to the U.S. was almost the size of their entire GDP. Mm. Um, adjusted for inflation, we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars, and. I don't really know what that would be in pounds off the top of my head, but it was a lot of money. (laughs) Yeah. Therefore, they were dependent on Germany for war reparations, which Germany defaulted on in in 1923, which sets off many of the events that ultimately lead to World War II, like Mm -hmm. the hyperinflation and their occupation. But let's not get too off track. These loans... So these these World War One loans to from the United States to uh, the, the British, they weren't paid up until about five years ago. So it takes about one hundred years to pay these loans off. You think and, that'll um, be around how long it'll take us to pay off our Chinese debt? <laughs> the U.S. will probably default on that before they pay back any of these loans. But the British were apparently very upset. And one of the reasons that they were upset is because the U.S. was insisting that they pay back in you know, either gold or cash. So what happened is a U.S. diplomat in London sent a warning back to the state saying that England is going to pursue a hostile uh, policy towards America. Specifically, they're going to try and turn countries that the U.S. has a uh, significant interest in against them. So um, they're going to go to countries like Mexico, Japan, South America. Uh, well, South America is not a country, but you know, countries within the United States orbit, um, they're going to try and turn them against America. Right. And what this diplomat did not know was that Great Britain had actually already begun war planning against the U.S., so this war plan was called Defense Scheme Number One, which prepared for the scenario that the U.S. was ultimately going to invade Canada over these these war debts. And um, the creator of this plan was a Canadian military officer named Lieutenant Colonel James Buster Brown. Buster Brown. Buster Brown. And he begins this espionage mission along the, the Canada-New England border. So mainly in 
Vermont. And uh, we actually have some of these notes. We have some notes that are from his... Also, his, be- before uh, you do that, I just want to point out that this dude actually like went undercover and crossed the border illegally and brought, I think, nothing with him except for like a Kodak camera and like something to write with. And he was just like basically touring the United States, like writing down what he saw and taking pictures and stuff. And a lot of the things that he wrote down and, and took pictures of were, would be totally useless in a battle, but it's still super interesting to read. Uh, all the things that he was um, paying attention to when he came over, like his observations, are kind of cool. You have to you have to watch out for those Canadian spies. I know, right? <laughs> What's that all about? You can tell. You know how you can tell if someone's Canadian or not. How they have beady black eyes and flapping jaws. Ah, uh, that's only in South Park. <laughs> yeah, that's how you can tell if someone's Canadian or not. Just look at the eyes. They're beady and black. Um, if they're laugh, if they're always giggling at fart sounds, <laughs> Terrence, hey, then that would probably make me a Canadian. Oh, all right. Uh, so here are some of the notes. So the the people of Burlington, Vermont, seem very affable and not as American as other U.S. cities one has visited. In rural Vermont, he noted that if Americans are not actually lazy, they have a very deliberate way of working and apparently believe in frequent rest and gossip. <laughs> So, Talking shit about Bernie Sanders' neck of the woods there. Yeah. Um, the women throughout the rural districts appear to be heavy and not very commonly lot. I don't heavy know what commonly very, lot means. Comely. Comely. It's like beautiful or no, oh. attractive. Okay. So they're, he, he, was, he was ripping on them. He was, they're, they're fat and ugly, apparently, okay. according to him. I don't see how this is useful in, in a war yeah, situation. Yeah, I don't see how this but... is useful war information. <laughs> a large number of men of the state of Vermont are fat and lazy, but pleasant and congenial. Okay. That's funny. <laughs> he just wrote fat and lazy, but pleasant. But pleasant and congenial. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, I mean, I guess maybe the fat and lazy part might be useful information for a war, um, but like, it's just interesting observations here. Keep going. What else has he got? Invading Canadians would be welcomed, if not as liberators, then at least bartenders, <laughs> since Vermonters were eager for the drink Prohibition denied them. <laughs> well, that's probably true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just win them over with a bunch of booze. <laughs> a large and influential number of American citizens who are not altogether pleased with democracy and have a sneaking regard for Great Britain, British law and constitution, and general civilization. On the whole, Vermont was a best an obstruction for any invading Canadian force. I mean, throwing shade at Vermont. <laughs> but, I mean, I guess that's what he observed when he came out there. I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't totally inexperienced. I mean, he obviously he was an officer. He, you know, he fought in World War One, and, you know, he was a respected person, but... I just find it super interesting, like when uh, looking through all the, the different random observations that he had about the United States is like, you'd think that he'd be paying attention to like, you know, mostly like critical choke points or like, where can we get the high ground <laughs> or shit like that. And then you read about all this stuff about, you know, just the personalities of the Vermonters of the time it just seemed like an interesting read. I, I feel like he was just trying to vacation for a little while. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, well, here's. Just to give some more back background on Brown, so he was a, an experienced World War One officer. Right. Um, basically, he was going to use German shock troop strategies. Mm. So, 
quick attacks on enemies' weak points with small groups of infantry, you know, like invade quickly with flying columns of, of militia across the border and then retreat, blowing up bridges and, and train tracks behind them. Mm-hmm. Um, ultimately, it was like an effort to buy uh, time for Canada while Britain was able to eventually join the war with their with their navy and, you know, additional troops from the empire. And, um, you know, the plan was, uh, and I'm reading from this book, um, with air support, Western troops would occupy Seattle, Spokane, but in Portland. Troops from the Prairie Command would take Fargo and Great Falls before moving on to Minneapolis and St. Paul. In the east, troops marching from Quebec would occupy Albany while the Maritime Army reclaimed Maine for the Crown. And in the Midwest, the Great Lakes Command would take Niagara and Detroit. So isn't that just... It's bold It sounds very unlikely. Yeah, I mean well, it's a bold plan. But what I mean, he like was the, planning was was an offensive action. You know, an offensive action was necessary for you know for for defense. And um, I guess the the reason why they thought it could work, or he thought it could work, even though the U.S. had a way bigger population, is because America had very few troops close to the border. Right, because we um, weren't worried about them. <laughs> well, not at least not at the time. Not well. I guess maybe not when he was. Uh, not when these reconnaissance missions or these plans are being drawn up, but the United mm-hmm. States obviously was worried about them because they drew up a complete war plan that we're going to get into. But when you think about it, I mean, they do. I mean, this does sound totally nuts, and it's really hard to contemplate. But um, Brown's scheme is not that crazy, um, even with the lopsided troop figures. Um, I don't know what the exact ratio is, but. The United States has obviously a way bigger population and a way big, bigger standing army. War but plan the U.S. goes into great detail about all of their troops. I yeah. think it was like 138,000 total, including reservists. It wasn't a lot. Well, you have to... The times, the U.S. just demobilized from World War One. That's true. An unpopular war. Mm-hmm. And... You know, around this time, you, you see some weird things in the 1920s and 1930s um, where, for example, Finland was able to fend off the Soviet Union in a war. That's true. And Finland was pretty small at the time. Compared to the, Soviet, to the Red Army. I mean, the Red mm-hmm. Army wasn't really the Red Army yet. They were still kind of um, green and wet behind the ears. Um, but we were actually going to do a podcast on that, on the Angel of Death. We never did it yet. We'll do it. Eventually. We were talking about doing that. Yeah, the, the Finnish sniper. But um, so the the U.S. was unaware of this scheme, at least at the time they were unaware of this scheme. But this report from the diplomat they had in London, he was like a military diplomat. Um, you know, the report about Britain being unhappy with their war debts convinced them to create their own plan. So in May of 1930, the U.S. War Plans uh, Division drew up War Plan Red that was described as a exercise in peacetime preparedness. And the war planners thought that Britain would start off with an attack on American merchant ships, but soon would be followed by a Canada-based invasion of the Great Lakes the the Northeast, uh, D.C., and also Pittsburgh. 
So all the you know major industrial centers in the United States, um, including it's, Pittsburgh. I, I was just going to say that, that, that of, that's prob- that's probably not very different from you know how the War of eighteen twelve played out. Actually, <laughs> yeah, I know it's, it's not it's, really it's that the, different at all. It's the exact same you know scenario. Which I guess you know if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Why would they come up with some other new plan? Well, that's what they that's what they expected. So this is what American war planners are saying, what, mm-hmm. what they expect Canada to try, those right. damn Canadians to try. And um, that would be followed. So after the land invasion, there would be an um, invasion from the British Navy. of, of by, They would go attack the Panama Canal, and then they would go invade the Philippines. And Phil, the Philippines was a colony that— Mm-hmm. the u.s won during the spanish-american war now right. um i mean obviously this sounds this still sounds nuts like the manpower necessary for this would be tremendous but um i'll i'll go on to this uh i'm going to quote from this book real quick um because they the u.s thought the british navy was that good where there was a chance they'd be able to pull this off um so Within 40 days, they calculated the British could assemble in the port of Halifax, Nova Scotia, a fleet of 14 battleships, 38 cruisers, 5 aircraft carriers, 130 destroyers, and 34 submarines. That's Along with this armada, that's a lot of ships. Along with this armada, they figured um, 148,000 British troops would muster in Canada, supplemented with troops from India, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, and even the Irish Free State for a total of 2.5 million men. With a force this size, in addition to Britain's navy and aerial might, Britain could quickly and easily invade the United States. The only reasonable defense planners, con- uh, the only reasonable defense planners concluded was a good offense, a rapid counter-invasion of Canada. Hence, War Plan Red. So, I guess in context, when you think about it, they're the British was a powerful country. The British was a powerful country. It doesn't really sound like English. The British Empire was extremely powerful at this time. Um, right. To think I that mean, just, just the idea of the of all those ships. I mean, I'm I'm counting like you know almost 200 total vessels and two and a half million man army. If you count all of the you know uh, colonies that they'd be drawing forces from, um, yeah, that's that sounds like a credible threat. <laughs> and I <laughs> yeah. guess and I guess. Um, there were there weren't really any naval battles in World War One. There was one major naval battle between the British and the Germans, where it was kind of a stalemate, where both sides declared victory. But there weren't too many ships sunk. So, um, I'm sure they had a lot. I mean, they were obviously building. One of the reasons, and this is obviously a gross oversimplification, but you know, one of the uh, preludes to World War One is. A British versus German naval race, where the British right. and the Navy and, and the Germans were, um, you know, just in a basically a navy in a in a ship race, like they're both right. building ships, naval arms to race, compete, right. mm-hmm. yeah, naval arms race to, to compete with each other, um, and the British so, were so trying to outbuild the Germans because the German ships were pretty good, pretty good, pretty cool, P- pretty cool. Um, and and being the fact that Germany lost World War One, you know, yeah, kind of gives you an indication of how well the British did on that front. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. 
all the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters and what do I even say other than hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Well, I mean, no one really did well in World War I. It was a complete disaster for every country involved. Um, yeah, including the British relative. Empire. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's. I, I mean, we're talking about what the American war planners were thinking. What what could be possible? Like what the British could do. You know, they're trying to uh, argue them up. You know, build the case as strong as case as possible. You know, kind of like building the case that Iran has nuclear weapons, or they're about to have nuclear weapons in six months. After every six months, you know what I mean. Right. Well, I mean, I think there's probably two uh, arguments that go along this, in, and either one of them is, you know, this is these exercises, this war plan, red things like that, are are ways to keep the, you know, the officers and, and the United States um, busy and thinking and sharp, um, because you know they're in a peacetime. So, you know, what what do military officers, what what good are they if they're not drawing up some plans to <laughs> to invade someone? Um, they're basically just, you know, wasting our money. Uh, so th- that could be one thing that this was just like a hypothetical situation that they wanted to draw up because, you know, military officers. Well, it's don't more. Do it's more than a hypothetical. It, it's more than a hypothetical because we're going to get into it. But there's actual funding that goes into this. So well, yeah, but that that doesn't come until after, right? So like they they didn't they didn't start it with the funding in mind. The funding came after the the report came out. And the the, the second part though that the, the alternative to this is that. Um, the United States could have a vested interest, you know, vis-a-vis manifest destiny um, of invading Canada because, you know, we've we already have Alaska on what appears to be the Canadian mainland, and you know, Canada's pretty rich in a lot of uh, mineral resources, and you know, we we have a history of you know, squabbling over the border between you know the U.S. and Canada, as we pointed out early on, so. It's entirely possible that the political powers that be, or even the military powers that be, kind of understood that dynamic, and we're like, well, yeah. Justification is that Great Britain has a massive navy and could amass a huge army, and that could be very dangerous and scary for us. But the you know the spoils of war are equally uh, you know attractive in this in this particular instance because Canada is very very rich with 
natural resources. One of the one of the big things that they go through at length in the War Plan Red, uh, talking about Canada is like how much uh, you know uh, industry they have. So how much um, ore they're mining, and how much aluminum and nickel and and iron that they have, and how much coal deposits that they were doing. And it, it was actually very surprising to me to see how how high up Canada ranked in in the world because they were doing um, comparisons on uh, as an example um, how many how much iron ore was being uh, mined and smelted and i think they were like seventh in the world or something like that in that particular regard uh and, and there was just a bunch of different uh economic uh, activity that canada was engaging in at the time that would obviously be very attractive um you know for the united states if we were to annex it um and you know if you look at the 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 scheme uh scheme number one what was it called again uh from from the british on the canada side defense scheme one right Um, defense scheme one yes right they were even planning on you know capturing uh maine and giving it back to the crown as it as it was written there so you know it was always kind of in the back of the you know in the back of everyone's minds for these plans whether it was the canadian plan to invade the united states or whether it was our plan war plan red to invade canada in the back of our minds there was always this idea of like territorial expansion right and i think that's probably the more relevant uh, of the two of why something like this caught on and why eventually as you pointed out henry um you know some money got backed behind it because there's some financial and uh you know geopolitical interests in in being able to you know annex more territory well, let's talk about like what the what they said the goal is in this plan. So the expulsion. So the stated goal is, according to this document, I got the documents. The expulsion of Red Great Britain. So they're speaking in you know color codes. Um, right. red, red is, is Great, Great Britain. Britain. Crimson is uh, Canada. Blue is the United States. Black yes. is Japan. Although that doesn't come up. Excuse me. Black is Germany, and orange is Japan. I think green is Mexico, um, but, you know, they're labeling countries by colors. From North and South America and the definite elimination of red as a strong competitor in foreign trade, you know, destroy British influence. That's um, true. And, it's, and it ends up being very similar to the Canadian plan, Defense Scheme 1, or at least kind of a mirrored version of it. So they would be invading along very similar paths. And the first step was a naval takeover of Halifax to deny the port as a staging area for the British. Um, Moving north from Albany and Vermont, an armored column would take Montreal and Quebec. Quebec. From Detroit, another column would take Toronto. And from Buffalo, Niagara Falls, crippling the Canadian power grid. And then Grand Forks, North Dakota, would, would be the launch point for an invasion of Winnipeg. And finally, from Bellingham, Washington American troops would overpower Vancouver. Um, what's also interesting about this is that uh, Charles Lindbergh also helped, helped uh, write some of this plan up. And uh, Charles Lindbergh is the famous aviator. He was the, the first person to fly from or fly nonstop from New York to Paris. Mm-hmm. So he was flying reconnaissance missions in Canada. Um, and here's, there's just like all sorts of weird shit written in here. So 
for example, um, according to these war planners, the red race is more or less phlegmatic. <laughs> phlegmatic. Have you ever heard that word before? Phlegmatic. I mean, not not exactly, but you know, I, I looked it up also. So, <laughs> phlegmatic. So I had to look this up, and it's a word that means. Um, Having an un- unemotional and stolidly calm disposition. Unemotional, the, stoic, right. in either way. And then the sentence uses the phlegmatic British character. Right. But noted for its ability to fight to a finish. Also, the British could be reinforced by colored troops from their colonies. So not we're not talking about colored uh, as in countries. We're talking about, um, you know, Brown people. Brown people. So mm-hmm. some of the colored races, however, come of good come of good fighting stock, and under white leadership, can be made into very efficient troops. Okay, so, kind of racist Pro- product of the time, I suppose, but still racist. Some good old some good old fashioned nineteen uh, twenties racism or nineteen thirties racism. Mm-hmm. Here is something bizarre. So, War Plan Red, it also addressed the Catholic question. So, if the United States ever conquered Canada, I'm reading from this document, the dual language would be done away with at once, and the Roman Catholic Church would have much less power and influence by 100-fold. We were talking about this last night, weren't we? Yeah, weren't we? Yeah, I think the, the line of our But not related was- to this. We were just talking about how it was, it's weird to think that there used to be a strong anti-Catholic uh, sediment in this country. Right. And and you and I both uh, were, were raised Catholic at an yeah. early period. So, you know, coming from our disposition, it, it wasn't, ab- at least for me, it wasn't abundantly clear that um, Catholicism wasn't, uh, wasn't a major um, religion in the United States or or at least not the majority religion that that understanding didn't come until much later for me uh, and I had no idea that there was such strong anti-catholic um, you know rhetoric and and sentiment in the United States for a very long time and and you know obviously I think the first major example was like JFK and being him being the president and also being Catholic was like a, a big stink. And I remember learning about that for the first time going like, all right, why was that a problem? <laughs> well, very this, interesting. what, what this addresses is the Catholic is, um, that's like a plus, you know, it's right. written in the context is like, yeah, this will actually, it will mitigate the influence of the Catholic church worldwide. Right. Mm-hmm. Which is, which is, it's interesting to see in this document. Right. I mean, it makes in hindsight being 2020, it makes sense. Right. Like the, the the Pope holding sway across, you know, all of his you know, peoples, and uh, I wonder, I wonder how much uh, Joe Biden is swayed by the Roman Catholic Church on his policy and decision making. But not <laughs> digress. <it's, laughs> absolutely none. There's very <laughs> limited influence. It's, it's not like it used to be. Um, so crimson cannot successfully defend her territory against the United States. She will probably concentrate on the defense of Halifax and the Montreal-Quebec line in order to hold bases of operation for Red. 
Important secretary efforts will be made to defend her industrial area and critical points on her transcontinental railroad lines. The policy will be to prepare the provinces and territories of Crimson and Red to become states and territories of the Blue Union upon the declaration of peace. And meaning it is. <laughs> meaning, I guess that goes back to what you were saying, like, hey, so yep. maybe there was some territorial ambitions and this wasn't entirely self-defense. This mm-hmm. was like, hey... This could be a good time to grab some more possible states or territory. Um, right. At this point, man, my history is bad right now. Alaska was not a state yet. Um, mm-hmm. I had to think, think about so. that for a second. No, Alaska mm-hmm. was not a state in the 1930s. That was until like the 50s, right? Um, but, yeah, it makes it makes sense. Um, but it seemed like this was actually an attempt to – I mean, it would be more likely that these – the Canadian territory would be a state than Alaska. I mean, it'd be closer to the mainland, you know, for I mean? sure. Yeah. It, um, there's, there's like areas that are just like touching like Detroit, you know, or like the, the, the bits across the water, you know, in Niagara or, you know, the bits, you know, bordering Vermont and New York and upstate New York, you know, like all of that could very easily be just the United States also. And I just want to, you know, give the disclaimer, you know, I'm, I'm not, pulling from too many different sources right now i'm reading you know the main document as well as the uh, you know book that gives some more color to the document um so there very well could be an explanation for this but just my conspiratorial mind automatically goes into oh like they wanted the annex territory you know what i mean of course Um, of course i think that part was obvious in my opinion uh, I, I mean, they wrote about it in the plans. <laughs> I know. You know. When you write about it in the plans, it's uh, it kind of makes, makes it hard it to obvious. ignore that part, <laughs> you know. But yeah, I mean, a- annexing Canada, like I, you were pointing this out before. It was, what's interesting is that after this plan was drawn up, you know, the Congress approved $57 million, um for its effort. In, and that was in February of 1935 for basically an updated version of the plan and, and the <laughs> the updated version of the plan was crazier admittedly um and the the money that they were going to uh, appropriate to this fund was basically going to be used to to build three uh, of these military airfields uh <laughs> the story for this is hilarious they wanted to build these uh we, we didn't have too many airstrips or airfields kind of along the canadian border uh, obviously, you know, the Canadians noticed that we don't have very many troops in the area. So uh, in order to kind of give us a spring off point, we were going to use at least part of this $57 million to build more airstrips, airfields, three of them specifically. Uh, and I think the majority of them were going to be along that kind of great um, prairie plains area uh, in, in, the, in the upper Midwest. And we initially wanted to disguise them as civilian airports. Uh, so that we could pretend like, oh, no, the, these aren't, you know, military assets. They're just civilian airports. And then we would use them as spring off points to, like, bomb the shit out of, uh, you know, Halifax or whatever. Um, but um, that actually strikes ended up... against the Canadian Air Force. Right, exactly. But but the plans for this actually <laughs> leaked. Uh, so our cover got blown uh, that those airfields were uh, actually military installations. So. <laughs> uh, I think a, a lot of the story of this of this in general uh, were plan read and 
and a lot of this is just like a story of um, really bad uh, secret keeping <laughs> in the in the United States because all of this stuff got leaked eventually. Um, well, this was decla- this was um, declassified in 1974, and that's when people started writing about it. And mm-hmm. something that also was included in this financing was some of that money went towards a, like a the largest war game the United States ever had at that point. Right. And they did this war game right along the, the U.S.-Canadian border up in Fort Drum, New York, which is basically, mm-hmm. you know... It's, it's Canada. <laughs> it's, it's basically yeah. Canada. So it's, it's yeah. within walking distance. It's close. It's, it's um, maybe like 10, 20 miles off the Canadian border. So... Uh, but that's the thing, though. It, they were doing this giant war game at the same time that this information leaked, so it was actually pretty crazy. Um, and, I, and I think it, it might make sense to just talk about some of the specifics of the plan because we, we touched on a few of the things, but um, I, I think it, it kind of goes over uh, a lot of people's heads how incredibly detailed the plan was and like what areas they would choose to hit and why they would want to hit them. And uh, I'm just kind of like loosely pulling from the original uh, plan here. Um, and so one of the uh, parts that I found pretty interesting was uh, talking about how Canada wouldn't have the manpower uh, to actually defend themselves. Uh, I think I mentioned earlier in the show that there was something like 138,000 um, Canadian troops that were available, and that was including the reservists. So they saw that as like a like not necessarily an easy target, but like you know 138,000 troops isn't a ton. So they understood that anything that Canada would do would be to protect critical infrastructure and just wait you know, like hold out until um, the British Empire can come and like basically save their asses. Uh, And so they named a couple, I think it was like six uh, specific uh, spots where they thought were of critical strategic importance. And I'm going to read off a few of those areas as well as like the reasons why they were uh, important. So I just took the liberty of finding all the important parts uh, and just condensing them into just a few uh, a couple of sentences for you guys here. So, um, so they have the first area, which is the most important area, and that was the Halifax, Moncton, St. John area. Um, and uh, the reason why this was the most important um, uh, of the areas is Halifax. It, you know, it was the, the the port there is is the most important part, um, and that's you know way off on the on the east coast. And what's important about it is that. Uh, it would be a easy point for the British to come and uh, obviously land and, and replenish the Canadian forces and, and use that as their spring off point to, you know, uh, conduct further operations in the United States. Um, Moncton, uh, which is something that I didn't know about until very recently, uh, it's it's got a peninsula that's connecting Nova Scotia um, and the mainland. Uh, I think, in, in that, just to go back to that, I don't want to, mm-hmm. sorry, I, th- I'm, I think that is one of the first places in Nova Scotia, I think that's where the first um, British ships landed in North America. I pretty, I'm, I think that is, I have to double check on that again, but I know that's, that just popped in the mind. And the reason why I bring that up is, is, uh, is because it just kind of shows how close that is. Cause that protrudes. It's a, e- more it's east a pretty close. East. Yeah. It's, it's, it's pretty close by way of, you know, um, of, of seafaring. Uh, it's a, it's a close uh, spot and they would definitely want to go there and, and, and Nova Scotia is super important for uh, a lot of both import and export uh, in Canada. 
Um, but but there's this one particular area in, at Moncton where there's a peninsula, as I was saying, that connects Nova Scotia and the mainlands. Um, to and it's only like 14 miles wide, uh, so it's a super narrow channel. And and the reason why this is kind of important is because uh, it would give the British uh, a, uh, a highly defensible position on the east on the east coast. Because if it's only 14 miles narrow, you know, you have if we were to engage in a naval battle against them, that's that's a very that's a very narrow area, um, you know, to, to send ships through. So it's really really easily defensible. Think about like the hot gates of Thermopylae for a moment, right? And why they chose that particular spot to hold off the Persians, right? Um, it would be easily defensible uh, in that respect. So taking over that this particular Halifax, um, Moncton, Saint John area was super uh, important and. And they, they posited that, they, um, you know, the United States, the, these war planners were saying that uh, if they get control of this area, they would deny the British uh, the only ice-free port on the East Coast uh, suitable for an overseas base. Uh, and that's super important because Canada's fucking cold and they have other ports farther north. But, you know, a lot of them are usually covered in ice for like four, four to five months out of the year, um, making them totally useless. Uh, and uh, also, uh, it, it would stop them from preparing a naval base on the East Coast that they can use to, you know, come down uh, our way and <laughs> make some trouble with us. Uh, but also, this is an interesting one. There's apparently a transoceanic submarine cable service. Um, I don't know if you knew this, but they, they literally run cable to this day, actually, um, between our side of the world and their side of the world, the Eastern and Western hemispheres. And it's a transoceanic cable, meaning it's a it's literally a cable <laughs> from here to there with the, that they were using for uh, communications and, and things like that. And now we actually use them for like fiber optic and internet and shit like that. Um, but that cable is obviously super important for communications. And if they were able to capture that particular area, they can stop communications between Canada and Britain, um, which would have been super useful. Uh, and also, uh, there are a couple of air bases in the area uh, of Halifax that they can um, prevent the the British from using. Um, and one one bit, and I'm going to read this directly. So, if Halifax is to be captured without the use of force, uh, without the use of large forces and expenditure of considerable time and effort, it must be accomplished promptly before the red reinforcements can be landed or crimson uh, organized for its defense. So they understood that we have to hit this target fast and quickly and also the 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 window to to do so was super narrow because the moment that the canadians would um, get a whiff of like blood in the water they were gonna defend the shit out of this particular area um so yeah the halifax area moncton st john that was all uh, of utmost importance um but there was also many more so there, there's the montreal quebec area uh, also sometimes known as the st lawrence area uh and a couple of reasons for this and in terms of importance, there's also some ports there, right? The ports of Montreal and Quebec. Um, those were like more icy ports, like I was t- telling you about, like four to five months of the year, they're going to be stuck in, in ice, which makes them useless, uh, especially for a military operation. Um, but there's still, uh, you know, many months out of the year uh, where they can totally use this as a, as a forward operating base, um, you know, for the British. And... Um, but also there's a lot of commercial importance here. Uh, it controls, uh, all of the communication lines, uh, by land, sea, and wire between the industrial, uh, and agricultural centers of Canada. So out farther West and the Eastern seaboard, 
right? So this is like kind of the hub where, you know, the breadbasket talks to the, you know, um, uh, the eastern uh, part of the, the country that does all the, you know, import exports, especially Europe. Um, so Montreal has a much bigger uh, harbor and terminal facilities, but Quebec, because of its like location, is was considered more uh, important. Uh, and some of the things that they posited would be to basically m- stop the British from using the St. Lawrence River uh, and the ports there um, and cut all of Canada west of Quebec um, you know, f- off, cut them off from the eastern seaboard altogether. There were also a couple of uh, you know, air bases there as well, uh, but super, super important for this particular um, uh particular region was the the coal and the iron that came from Nova Scotia and Newfoundland uh, and cutting off all of the imports that they get from the uh, Atlantic so they they saw this as like a choke point um, from a logistic purpose Um, so I thought that was pretty interesting and just I just want to like stop and reflect it's crazy the detail you know as you mentioned Um, Mm -hmm. it's crazy they really thought about it yeah they, they really thought this through it wasn't just as we're going through more of this right now um, and just you know revisiting it, it is qu- quite amazing how uh, much these war planners thought about like the geography and the natural resources and <laughs> yeah, and just the different choke points and geopolitical um, notions. But I guess that's what their job is to do, right? You know, they wouldn't be uh, war. And planners. they had nothing better to they had nothing better to do too because it was peacetime, right? So it's not yeah. like they were. I mean, they just think about the Rand battle. Just think about the Rand Corporation and, you know, all the war scenarios they're writing up. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess there's not, there's not some huge military industrial complex at this time, though, um, that is, like, being contracted to do this. So it's coming from the war planners and the government themselves rather than, right. like, a Rand Corporation or something like that. Or Think yeah, Tank. Yeah. I'm Jane Perlez longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off. An eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. Or well, think, I mean, 
That's what can you really say one is worse up. than the other if they're coming up with the same exact ideas, you know? <laughs> so um, The Rand organization is a think tank. That's what I should have said. Um, mm-hmm. But, all right, I digress. Let's go back to this thing. Yep. Uh, so third most important area uh, was the Great Lakes area. And um, I'll compress this quite a bit because there's a lot of, like, names of places. And I don't want to totally alienate our non-U.S., non-Canadian listeners on this particular part but what's super important about this particular great lakes area is the great lakes uh look at a map there's a bunch of you know giant water uh waterways and lakes and things like that uh and those are of strategic and geopolitical and of course economic um importance there's a ton of ports uh and um uh one uh one that i learned about was the sudbury nickel copper mines which were going to be super important for you know just the 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 general uh you know economic crippling of of canada so i think what they were planning for for this particular great lakes takeover was to stop the transportation of iron ore coal and grain and a bunch of other stuff like that um and also to basically uh cover the spread on this particular bridgehead that's covering a uh like a, a very narrow uh waterway near the detroit area uh, by the way, War of 1812, we got spanked in that particular area. I forget the name of the general, but uh, he basically gave up uh, a fort in Detroit like immediately without without a battle uh, in that particular area. So <laughs> uh, I, I, I think they might have had that particular embarrassment in mind when thinking about um, taking over the Great Lakes area and fortifying the Detroit area. And also at the time, Detroit and the surrounding areas were huge for manufacturing, right? So we have... You know, it was highly industrialized, so it was super important for us to strengthen and fortify that particular area. Um, but right across the water, it was pretty much the same, you know, uh, on both sides of the waters. So controlling that area meant controlling a lot of the industry and a lot of the manufacturing, uh, of which I was very surprised to find Canada was doing a very good job at the at the time. Super high on, on the list of countries that were doing manufacturing, actually. Uh, this next part is going to be short. So Winnipeg. So the Winnipeg area was another one of those ones that they were eyeing. And there was only one really big reason why they would consider Winnipeg a uh, crucial um, area to go after. And it's literally it's the, the, railroad the railroad system. system. Yeah, Ex- exactly. Right. That's literally it. Right. So they, they, they control the railroad system. So if you if you get Winnipeg, you basically, you know. You, you get Canada by the balls. I guess more uh, importantly, it's the center people. of the it's the center of the railroad system. Exactly, exactly. So, so you can't really transport like people or like grain or coal or you know uh, provisions, any kind of oil, things like that, to the east to help them out. If you just grab it, if you just grab them at Winnipeg. And then there's, uh, I guess, finally there's the Vancouver area, and yep. British Columbia, and. and this one, I was actually really surprised to find out that this one was like, kind of like secondary in terms of all of the importance. They were like, "Yeah, we'll we'll just go after this for, for fun. It's it's not super important, but we'll do it anyway." Um, and, and well, I don't know what the main... population of, I'm sorry, I don't know what the, the population of British Columbia or Vancouver was at the time, but I'm sure it wasn't. There wasn't a very big population. No, it wasn't, and and you know, obviously it had. The reason why they were going after this is because they had a uh, naval base at Esquimalt, um, and also uh, it was like an outlet for you know provinces in the west of Canada. Um, but they, 
the you know the the, the folks that drew up this plan wanted to just deny any any bases or you know any any naval ports things like that uh in the west coast so just deny more bases uh for for the british but also there was a small problem around uh a particular area uh and on the west coast for us and it was in the pudget sound area um yeah, near washington and uh also there's some cable uh communication so in transcontinent uh, same same cable system that we had be, between Nova Scotia and, and Britain, they have one uh, on the west coast uh, with the Far East, so so that they can't communicate with you know the colonies that they had out there, like presumably I don't know Hong Kong or some shit like that. Um, but like this, apparently Vancouver wasn't like a very high priority for them, uh, which I found pretty interesting. But I guess the makeup was much different then than it is now. Um, but yeah, I mean I read the entire uh, the entire document and. Honestly, a lot of it was super repetitive, but the level of detail that they were getting into, like number of men that they have, number of ships that they have, like how much grain are they exporting? Like they really, really did their homework on this part. And it's kind of scary, to be honest. You know, I mean, I suppose that's what it takes in order to, you know, uh, draw up a war plan <laughs> against, a, you know, uh, an industrialized nation. But um, I mean, what do you think? Well, I, something I need to learn more about is um just how serious the united states was about or like what was the general consensus that this was a possibility of happening um because i still think it was probably pretty low at this time uh, between most um most people in elite american society i don't think anyone really expected something like this to happen but it's just interesting to see this all on paper um kind of showing there what it was on the minds uh, it was on the minds of at least a few people in the government um because it wasn't really too much longer when fdr started making you know started saying things like we're going to respect britain's um Brit- the british empire's territory um you know this is an important friendship that we have yada 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 we're great friends with the british and and all that stuff that came along during world war Two. So um, it's hard to contemplate, but you know that's something that it's that kind of bears. If you're interested in this topic, I, that would be something I would want to start with um, to get a further historical analysis. Like how how serious were these plans? You know, they seem pretty serious reading them. You know what I mean? But is it just yeah. the product of a military staff that is looking for shit to do? Um, no, there's funding in it. There's $47 million. I don't, I can't do the math of what the inflation is at this time, but it's $47 million. <laughs> It's a lot of money. You know, the U.S. is not the, mo- the, the juggernaut. And it is the rising juggernaut, but it's not the juggernaut of the world at this well, time. Well, he, here's, here's, here's something interesting. And, and of course, uh, coming off of episode 200, I'm super, you know, still in this in this like ufo mode but like the u.s also has believe it or not plans for like what to do in the event of like alien contact you know so like at least part of this is just you know just like doing you know the military doing its due diligence to assess threats you know and and work with whatever we got but i think there's there's what if aliens took control (laughs) over canada and then launched an invasion (laughs) 
What if, what if Canadians are aliens? That's also likely. How would we know? I think they are. They're obviously not human. <laughs> they play hockey too well. It can't be real. I'm not sure what they are. <laughs> They're not human beings. Those Canadians. You dehumanizer. Well, that's all I have to really say about everything. I don't know. Is there anything else you want to add? No. I mean, unless you want to talk more about the alien invasion plans to <laughs> that the United States have, but uh, I'll, I'll leave that maybe for another episode. <laughs> yeah, maybe we'll leave that. We'll keep this a shorter episode. We're just over an hour on this one. Um, thanks, guys, for listening to another episode of Bro History. We really do appreciate your time um, and, and you continuing to listen. Um, if you enjoy the podcast... Or if you want to support us, rate and review the show. That is the number one way to support Bro History is to rate and review the podcast. Um, so do that on iTunes if you're listening on the Apple Podcast app. And if you want to further support our show, you can join us on Patreon. Um, Patreon is a great way to get extra content along with access to our Slack um, our Slack account is just a really fun place where everyone communicates. Um, we actually hung out with one of our Patreon supporters yesterday on 4th of July. Um, That's right. Yeah, we did. Shout, I guess shout out to Owen. Um, yep. And we will uh, we will see you, I guess, next. I'm actually not, I'm not really sure if we're going to be able to do an episode next week. We're going to try. Um, but we'll find we out. will. We'll we'll find out, but hopefully we can we can get some time together to do another episode. Um, so we're not doing it, so we can get back on our normal schedule. Uh, but we'll keep you posted. Um, you'll see that that uh, updated episode if we can get it. And uh, yeah, anything else to add? No, man. See you later. All right, peace, guys. feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts.